Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. The territory in which they lived extended from uh, Mesha in the direction of Safar, the hill country of the east. These are the descendants of Shem by their families, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the families of Noah's sons according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations, they spread abroad the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us take bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and uh, bitumen for uh, mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, uh, otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have had all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that, had, that they proposed to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their languages there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth and, they, and left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Well, if you were here with us um, for week one of this series, we've that we have titled Biblical Race Theory, that I have titled, I don't know who we is, but we try to you know, be inclusive. Um, <laughs> um, or if maybe you caught up online with us this, this week, you know that where we left off last week was on this glorious high point, right? It was good news. God's 
preferred vision for the church, this glorious ministry of reconciliation, to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled to each other. And this unity, this oneness described in Revelation where the church and our relationships with one another on earth mirror the heaven that John envisioned where there would be this great multitude and no one can even count of every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne of God. This is the church that Jesus talked about when Jesus commissioned us and sent us out to make disciples in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And how wonderful it must have been. How wonderful it must have been, right, to be a part of that early church. The momentum of it, the fire of it, the compelling vision of it. It must have been wonderful to be a part of the early church where everyone was united in this vision to be reconciled to God and to each other. This church where in the second chapter of Acts, it says that every day they, they would meet each other in the temple courts and they would break bread together and they would gather in their homes and they would eat together with glad and sincere hearts. What a great church to be a part of, that is. I want to be a part of that church. Breaking bread and praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, it says. And it says the Lord was adding to their number daily those being saved. That's as good as it gets in the church world. We can imagine those earliest believers sharing meals together around a table, one by one, next to one another, enjoying one another's company, sharing their beliefs in common, sharing even their possessions, it said, in common. There wasn't anything they would not do for one another. And it remained that way until something happened. It's important for us to remember that all those people sitting around that very first table were Jewish. And when these folks accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they saw that as the logical completion of their Jewish tradition. You know, a Messiah had been promised, a Messiah has come. This is the fulfillment of all we have been moving towards as the Jewish people. And they all shared this common commitment to the lordship and work of Jesus Christ. They were called Christians, but they all self-identified with Judaism. But then other believers began to join them at the table. Believers who were not Jewish at first, who were referred to as Gentiles. If, if you weren't Jewish, you were everyone else with, with numerous cultural backgrounds and ethnicities. And people of so many different backgrounds and cultures began taking a seat at this quite harmonious table. And suddenly, all kinds of questions come up. Did these new Gentile converts have to become Jewish first? Did they have to follow the law, well, the law as we know it, at least the kosher law for food, did they? But the biggest question of all, are they a part of us? Or are they something different? Is, is, is something else happening there? And so the early church, they did what churches do. They called a meeting. <laughs> and they got James and Peter and Paul all in the same room together, and they addressed some of these questions that people had. They addressed some of these questions, and the conclusion was, yes, everyone Everyone should sit 
at the same table. And so they did, and that worked for just a little while, a very short while. And in a portion of Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul describes this growing problem, and he says, I went to Antioch one day. It's the third largest Roman city in Palestine, this major urban center. I went to Antioch one day, and something was different there. Something has happened here. And we don't exactly know what happened, but something changed. In Antioch, now Peter, who used to be the greatest defender of everyone being at the same table, suddenly Peter did something that surprises Paul, offends Paul. He pulls the table apart into two. Peter, this defendant of everyone sitting at the same table together, he pulls the table apart and begins saying, Jewish Christians here, and the rest of y'all, you sit here. And Peter did it so effectively that not only did he do it, but Paul says that Barnabas heard what he did in his church, and Barnabas starts doing it too. Can you imagine Paul walking into a room in Antioch and saying, why are there two tables? And there's, there's something I know in all of us that says something's not right when there are two tables. Remember how you felt when your mom made you sit at the kids' table? There is something deep inside all of us that says there is something not right when there are two tables. And so Paul walks in and, and says this, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, blah, 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 blah. He let him have it. Paul says that a two-table faith is not in keeping with the gospel. Because there is something about the words of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. There's something that he speaks to, that Jesus speaks to. I don't know what it is about a two-table world, but there's something that has to do with power and status and resources and something indescribable about being at the better table, the higher table, that makes having two tables incompatible with the gospel. The gospel has to do with like equity and inequity. Jesus spoke to this. Justice and injustice. Jesus speaks to this. It has to do with who's in and who's out. Jesus speaks to this. And so Paul takes on Peter in this moment. And I don't know if you noticed, Paul did not call Peter by his new name. Paul calls Peter by his pre-Jesus name. We don't know why Peter caved. (laughs) Some say it was the peer pressure he felt at the time from the Judaizers, which um, are the Jewish Christians who thought that everyone had to be Jewish and then Christian, that there's like an order, you have to first become Jewish. Some people thought it was something worse than this, that he was receiving like threats. There was pressure from the zealots, which is very similar to what you would think of an extremist. Um, The zealots who believed that Jewish Christians or anyone who identifies as Jewish should not have any relationship at all with anyone of any other faith or culture, that he was receiving threats from them. We don't know what caused Peter to cave. We don't know. 
But, but what we know is that Paul spoke up against it and stood up against Peter and against this kind of two-table faith, and it made, it made people uncomfortable. And when we think upon this moment in the life of the, the history of the early church, when we think upon these two tables, we can't ignore the obvious. We have always been at least, at least a two table country. Right? And like, like Peter and Barnabas, many of us have gone through life sitting at one of those two tables. Some of us have gone through life sitting at the preferred table, the table that got the food first. And some of us didn't. I have had moments in my life where I have experienced glimpses of what it might be like to sit at the second table. Brief glimpses, like being, being a woman in a predominantly male profession. Like, perhaps you, you've had a glimpse at that in some way but I know which table I've sat at. I know which table had a seat for me my whole life. And I've had moments when I've had glimpses of the other, but I don't sit at that table. It's good, it's good to be a part of the head table, right? The food is, comes first. It's always hot when it comes, and there's usually plenty of it. It's comfortable, the chairs are comfortable, or, our history, though, shows us that there have always been a, a limited number of seats at that table, though. There's always been a limited number of seats at that tab the table of democracy. And saying that, I know, makes some of us really uncomfortable, especially if you're a person like me who has a seat at the table. It makes us uncomfortable. White people in the United States um, grow up on a narrative that there is just one table. Like, that's what we've been told. All people have access to this one table. And most of my life, I believed that narrative. I wonder if, like, you heard that narrative and believed it. I was taught that in school. There's one table. We all have access to this one table. I was taught that at home. I was taught that almost everywhere I went. <laughs> that was somewhat related to being around that table. The foundational narrative that so many of us hold is that America is a land of opportunity where anyone through diligence and hard work can go from rags to riches. But for some, for some people, it has been just that, just a dream, the American dream. It's a dream for some, it's not a reality and it's surely not a hope for them. And so I'm, I'm just like, it's gonna be the shortest, literally the shortest history of this you've ever heard. <laughs> um, and I know that by giving this history, I am, it's only one history. Um, there are many more divergent histories and stories to tell. But it was in, 
It was in 1619 when the first Africans were brought to the colonies and their life was actually way better than the descendants that followed. It was easier than the rest of their descendants because about 100 years after that, the Middle Passage is securely, firmly established and West Africa is plundered and impoverished and, and Europeans, people of European descent begin to build an incredible amount of wealth. Indentured servants also came to these new United States of America, these new colonies, but they were protected. Yes, there's a history of indentured servants, but they were protected by, by the crown. No protection was granted to slaves coming across the Middle Passage. By 1850, Virginia had the largest amount of slaves anywhere else in the colonies. One-fourth of all Southerners owned slaves and the economic foundation of America was established. The cell of human bodies built the wealth of a country. And even if you, they, there were some people who didn't own slaves, right? One-fourth of all Southerners owned slaves. There were some people who didn't, but, but some of them were bankers and insurance salesmen and farmers, all a part of this system, making loans, creating insurance for those over their property people. Farms, building farms where that property may work the farms that they build. Tens of millions in wealth for people at the white table. And the Civil War was fought, and we can just leave out the entire debate on whether the Civil War was about slavery or not, because a lot that follows is just as bad. So it's that, I mean, I'm going to actually just leave it out, because you don't need that, that debate, you don't need that claim to even build this history. The Civil War was fought, and out of that comes a time of reconstruction following, right? I'm Freedmen's Bureau creates um, protections for people who, um, who were enslaved and are now not. And yet, over and over and over again, people with power continue to tear down that and manipulate that in ways that set a narrative of whiteness to every white person that that is or that enslaved people are less than human. Reconstruction had no hold. And so what follows is this level of tyranny and terrorism that is similar to things ISIS might do. People, men coming into homes of black families and, and beating children and carrying the man away to be lynched. The last lynching didn't happen until 1968. Of course, all of that intimidation, the lynching and the, the beating and people just coming into your homes at any given point in time, all of that intimidation prevented these now citizens from wanting to have anything or even getting close to the halls of power. They, they stayed their distance. They had learned from a long time that we keep our distance from it. From voting, I'm not gonna show up to a voting booth, I know who's there. Then come Jim Crow laws literacy tests for voting. 
separate facilities, in the presence of, of power, passing, the, or presence and power were their concerns, but the passing on of generational wealth is what made all of these things work. The fear that if they, if they allowed persons of color to become citizens in full right, they would lose this passing on of wealth that began back in 1619. New Deal benefits during the time of the Great Depression only, only 35% of African-American soldiers were, had access to those benefits, benefits that helped pull people out of depression. After World War II, the, G, the GI Bill gave access, right, to education for, for veterans, but only 4% of black soldiers ever qualified for the GI Bill. Title III, a part of this, included housing benefits. Not allowed, it did not allow black people, though, to build the kind of equity that white people could. And then add to that redlining, which assumed that skin color contributes to the future value of someone's home, as it would be appraised, learning Loaning to people of color was deemed reckless. It was a reckless investment, and so out of that comes predatory lending, forcing black families to sell when they could no longer afford the high interest rates of these loans. Realtors would then come into these neighborhoods, buy up all of these houses, and then rent them back at jacked up prices, back to the same people who owned them just before. Add to that the war on drugs, the for-profit prison industry, the for-profit college industry that preys on high school graduates of color, promising them the world, and they get into debt faster than you could ever imagine. This, <laughs> we tend to believe that this isn't true that this isn't real. Many of us who are white, we want to, to, to act if, as if American history and economics has, no, has, has nothing to do with this. That, 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 the, that these moments in history have, have nothing to do with, with the kind of wealth our country has, has built over time and our ability to have access to it. But legacies live on, right? That's, the, that's, that's what makes them legacies. That's what makes these legacies. They, some of us are like, well, the Civil Rights Act in the 60s, it fixed up a lot of this. But legacies live on, even when historic injustices attempt to be corrected. And, and so we have to be honest about our past, the things we said, the things we've done, the songs we've sung, if we want God to do a reconciling work in us and through the church, we have, we have to begin by having our hearts interrogated by God. We have to begin by examining how our, our prejudices and bias and access at the table has formed us and shaped us. 
the historical and economic injustice of our country should be for us, like the minor prophets. They're the voices in our, in our sacred history that we rarely open and hear, the prophets. And there are a group of people who, who read the prophets, and that is, you know who those people are who read the prophets and know it well? That's the, that's the oppressed, that's the marginalized. They, they need to hear the words of hope. They need to know that God is on their side. And it's, it's the ruling, the, the people in power, the people at the, other, at, the, at the head table who usually avoid reading the prophets. We're not particularly uplifted by them. We feel quite interrogated by them, by the words of Amos, who says to the wealthy woman, women of Jerusalem, oh, you cows of Bashan, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and then say to your husbands, bring me a drink. Or the words of Isaiah, who, who says, Ah, those who enact unjust statutes and write oppressive decrees, depriving the needy of justice and making widows and orphans their prey. The prophets are preached the least of any part of the Bible in any church and are largely left out of devotional guides and Bible studies by white authors because for the sheer fact that they interrogate us, they interrogate our hearts, they're incredibly uncomfortable to read and if we do read them, often we do them injustice. I'll tell you what, I've heard, what I heard gro growing up, what I heard growing up or even from some colleagues now. Um, if, if they read, white theologians and preachers will often do something like this. They'll say, well, um, you know, that was a, that's a Jewish prophet over there, those Jewish people, and they have their, their Jewish problems. And so I'm and then they give some kind of enlightened American take on it. That is a separate thing. We're enlightened Americans. I'm thankful that my, that my uh, I'm thankful that my like my culture and my people don't have those problems over there, right? We did this also with one other story, and I want you to take a look at it today. Um, the way that we have over time rewritten stories to match um, is unbelievable and this might be a story you remember from childhood so um, this um, we read it today the story of Babel uh, uh, the the Tower of Babel who grew up on veggie tales there is a good you know the classic veggie tales uh, telling of this story and so I'm gonna read it again um, with you and I'm gonna have a question for you so pay attention now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we shall be scattered abroad across the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, 
because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Here's my question for you. Um, what did they do? What, what, what did they do wrong? And was there a punishment? And what was it? How have you heard this story before? What did they do? What did the people do? Did you hear it? I'm it's like Bible study now. Hey, come on, <laughs> give me some feedback. What, how have you heard this story told? What did they do? Yes. I've heard it that they were attempting to be like God, like trying to rise into the heavens yep. and kind of overthrow yeah. God yep. and become God. Yep, God exactly. Like, nope, smack down, we're not doing that. Right, right, yep. Attempting to become like God, yep. Mm-hmm. It's great. And so the result is, well, uh, so God said, uh-uh, that's not right. And God comes in and gives them the punishment of from the, the way that story's told, right? Gives them the punishment of scattering them across the, the earth. Imagine a story like that, and it told that way. How that um, creates an otherness. See, if it's, been, it's been like deeply ingrained in your Christian upbringing, or in that, that this is about, they wanted to be like God, and God punished them by giving people different languages. Imagine what that tends to do to someone who is, grows up in America in a place where people um, kind of largely have an, a nationalistic identity that says America, America first, that English is the preferred language, um, and that there is a particular skin tone or um, um, European descent normally to those at this table. And then you add that to it, and it feels a little bit like God ordained it. I never once questioned that reading. Um, there has been work done to kind of rethink scriptures like this. What did they, what the, what's the other part that they did? What is the other thing that they did that is often left out of that? Did anybody notice they, they all had one what? They all had one language. They all had one language. They all had one language and, and God looks at the earth and says, once they have one language, can you imagine what comes next? When they can all speak the same language, when this group of people can speak all the same language, can you imagine what can come next? This was not what I designed you to be. This was not what I said at the dawn of creation. This was not my call to Abraham at all. This one language thing that you seem to have managed to do. And so God, it's not a punishment. It's a restoration. God restores the purpose that was there at the dawn of creation, restores the purpose um, as, as Abraham would have known this, this go and, 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 and create the nations of the world. God restores it by confusing their language. Often there is another way that this is told too where it brings back in um, the Pentecost story. As if Jesus, Jesus coming along 
and um, Jesus being, you know, for all people. Then there's this big Pentecost moment where everyone in the room um, is speaking different languages and they all can understand each other at this moment. This Pentecost moment is considered this, this um, restoring, but God restored it all the way back in Babel. This, the understanding that, that the diversity of creation, the purpose of going out, the thing that Jesus did is Jesus united all people under one Lord, one faith, one baptism, with a diversity of languages, and we could understand each other because we all came to the same table. It's a whole different way to look at this scripture that you might have heard, but you see how we do this? You see how over time scriptures have been manipulated to tell a story that leans towards that table. So why do I, I share this with you? Why does God include, um, why, did, why did God ask writers, people to write down the words of the prophets? Why, did, why would we have these books included in our lexicon for the Bible? Why would we have a story like this that's been misused but actually has this rich, amazing, intercultural um, meaning behind it? Why? Because what, what God has done is inspired people to, to write down the words of the prophets because even if your generation isn't acting in an unjust fashion, God's saying, I want you to remember what has formed you and what has made you who you are as you interrogate yourself and all those hidden places in your heart. Why does God keep these books in the Bible? It's because of the same discomfort when, when we hear a word like whiteness. It's, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God, God cannot transform anything without first afflicting us a little bit. So if we feel afflicted, if, if we feel uncomfortable, Perhaps God is doing exactly what God's always wanted to do in us. Would you pray with me? God, we, um, we just read one of many scriptures that have taken on um, other life. The story about God's punishment happens to be a story about God's restoration and, and hospitality. Um, God, we can only imagine how that, how that in, played a role in the way we understood you and, and played a role in the way we perceive diversity and, and ethnicity and culture, especially if we were at a place where we had access to this table and had little, we had little or, or no even knowledge or experience with the other. God, we want so deeply to be people that are a part of that, that great commission to be reconciled with God and to be reconciled with the world, to go out. We want the church to be a place like this, but 
we have to grapple with and confront God how the disease the disease we feel has a lot to do with what you're doing in us in our hearts and in our spirits how you're working in us so that we might be a part of the work you do in the world and so disrupt us God that's what your prophets were for that's what Paul did with Peter disrupt us come in God Make us feel uncomfortable. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There